0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. A lot's happening in the news this week. So Peter, why don't you start? Because I know you have a story that people are really talking about now.
1: Yes, indeed, Lori will start in China. You know, the Chinese cosmetics market, it's the largest in the world, making up about 20% of the global market with over $3 billion in revenue. However, if you are a cosmetics company and you want to be cruelty-free, like we all want them to be, you cannot enter the Chinese market because of its requirement for animal testing, both pre- and pre post-marketing. So, even on the final product, they want to test the product on animals. Well, what has happened is that the agency overlooking this in China, the Gansu Province National Medical Products Association, they announced that post-market animal testing is no longer going to be a requirement on finished domestic or imported cosmetic products. So the next step that the cosmetics companies are going to push for is for China to remove its pre-marketing animal testing. And so groups like Humane Society International are encouraged, but caution, there's still a lot of work to go.
0: Okay. Well, it's about time China's starting to respond to world pressure. Okay, Peter, and I see you have another story that people are talking about. Please tell us about that.
1: Yes. This one's closer to home uh, in the Santa Anita Park. That's a horse track here in Southern California. We've driven past it a few times when we're down in that part of California. Well, a string of horse fatalities from December 2018 to present has been publicized. 22 horses have died relate, directly related to racing. This has caused the track to close intermittently. It's been under national scrutiny. Inspections on the surface of the track have been done by experts and there's just a lot of attention right now on this track. The track owners have responded and they are putting into place what they refer to as new safety measures. But I have to tell you, Laurie, I am not very optimistic that these so-called measures are going to do anything.
0: Peter, it's not unusual for horses to die related to horse racing, right? I mean, this story is unusual and big because
1: many horses died in a short amount of time, correct? Well, that's mostly correct. The first part is definitely correct. And uh, the horses are very large. They have those long spindly legs. They're pushed pass their limit and uh, they break down and they cannot be rehabilitated or it's too expensive to try. So they just get euthanized. Right. But regarding the number of horses that have died during this recent season, Patrick Batuello from Horse Racing Wrongs, you you need to go to his website, by the way, he says what's happening this year is no anomaly. He says it's business as usual. Mm. Just look at the three fiscal years. He writes at Santa Anita for Track-related kills only. From July 1st, 2015 to June 30th, 2016, 57 deaths. The next year, 54 deaths. The next year, July 1st, 2017 to June 30th, 2018, 37 deaths. That's 148 horses killed racing or training on that track over the past three years. So according to Patrick, really nothing has changed. It's just people are starting to pay attention to what's happening down there. So I'm glad that people are paying attention, and uh, maybe it'll shed some light on this problem if you really want to, like I said, get a better handle of the scope of this Visit Horse Racing Wrongs.
0: It's a horrible industry. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears here. I want to talk about food. Okay. Breakfasts and lunches served in New York public schools will be all vegetarian every Monday starting this fall. This started as a pilot program that was tried out last spring in 15 schools in New York and is now being expanded citywide. Mayor de Blasio said at a news conference, Cutting back on meat a little will improve New Yorkers' health and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're expanding Meatless Mondays to all public schools to keep our lunch and planet green for generations to come. Mayor de Blasio also said parents could still send their children to school with a lunch that contains meat if they liked.
1: Oh, that's very generous of him, isn't it? <laughs> so what do you think, Peter? I think it's terrible. Why? Boy, you're going to force these kids to eat food they don't like? Uh, and, and who is he to force this rule on families? It's, I think it's horrible. Parents Government. can
0: still give their children meat yeah. to take to school?
1: I think it is just like virtue signaling. I think it's just appealing to his green base purely politically. That's what I think. I think it's terrible.
0: Okay, well, you know, I have to tell you, I like this. And I support this. You surprised?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Even though, generally speaking, I strongly oppose the government getting involved in what our kids eat. And I agree with you. And I think nutritional decisions should be made locally by the school and, more importantly, by the consumer, which are the kids' parents. Yeah. But, But I like this... So I know I'm sounding a little inconsistent here, politically speaking, but I'm willing to admit my inconsistency and say government should not be involved, but I'm making an exception in this case. Why? Not for the reason which de Blasio states, which is the health benefits of eating less meat. Even though this fact is true, we all know that research consistently shows that plant-based diets are linked to lower risk of all sorts of diseases, including high blood pressure, lower risk of obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, right? And so not for that reason, because government shouldn't force something upon us because they think it's healthier for us. It's our bodies, we make our own decisions about our health and our kids' health. And not for the other reason de Blasio states, which is reducing meat consumption in the schools, will have an impact on reducing greenhouse gases in the city, although I strongly doubt his program alone will make a dent into the problem of greenhouse gas emissions that come from our factory farming of meats. But I am making an exception to my general political belief that government should stay out of these things because it's good for the animals and I'm all about helping the animals. It's not like he's forcing a place of business to sell plant-based foods or forcing a place of business to put a vegetarian or vegan item on the menu, which I totally oppose. But these are lunches served in schools. They might serve tacos on Tuesdays, hot dogs on Wednesdays, spaghetti on Thursdays. So Mondays, they'll now be vegetarian day. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's a good thing. And you never know, if they do this right, and make it satisfying to the kids, which is very doable, then there's a good chance this will be accepted by the kids and families, and it could even rub off on the families in terms of what parents serve in their own homes. Maybe this will plant a seed. Plant a seed, that's funny. (laughs) And And parents will decide it's a good idea for the rest of the family to reduce their overall meat consumption. Now for the record, I was strongly against Michelle Obama's school lunch program, and my reason was because the federal government shouldn't be involved in the students' lunches, and her program did not serve to help the animals. Her meal program was primarily based on limited calories, right? Because I think it was all part of her fight against childhood obesity program. And I think we all know her school meal program failed miserably. I think the main complaint among students was there was just not enough food and it was terrible, it just wasn't satisfying to the kids. There's a picture someone took of one of the typical lunches on the program and you see it consisted of some disgusting looking slices of lean meat two sets of crackers, a slice of cheese, and two little pieces of cauliflower. Mm. So it might be limited calories, but from a health standpoint, extremely unhealthy. Other than the two pieces of cauliflower, you have a plate of processed, salty, fatty, saturated fatty foods, with very little nutritional value. And I think it ended up that more than 500 schools pulled out of the federal school lunch program as a result of the new Obama regulations. Anyway, hopefully de Blasio will have better luck than Michelle Obama.
1: Yeah, well don't hold your breath, Lori. This is going to go down as a bigger boondoggle than the soda ban that came in a previous New York City administration. That was deemed a government overreach and shut down.
0: And I agreed with that. That's forcing businesses
1: yeah well it's It's close enough it's similar enough schools are not business and de blasio is hated and he's a knucklehead well that's true that's true
0: but again it's not like forcing a business to change their menu or alter their menu why are
1: schools feeding kids anyway why don't they all bring their lunch and this way families can feed their kids what they want
0: well now you're opening up a whole can of green apples that's that's true. true i agree with you there
1: okay but it's happening so we have to deal with it all right okay well let me let me add this little news item from Los Angeles which is uh, sort of related to your story okay? okay okay you know we all know Los Angeles City Councilman Paul Koretz he's done a lot for animals over over the years and I, I've met him he's really a swell guy and uh, we like his work generally but I really think he's going a little too far with his latest proposal Okay. Koretz wants to require all concessionaires at Los Angeles-owned properties, such as restaurants at the LAX airport and local Meals on Wheels programs. He wants to require them to offer at least one vegan dish.
0: See, I'm against that. I totally oppose that. These are for-profit businesses. You can't impose that on them.
1: Well, he also calls for privately owned movie theaters and large-scale entertainment venues such as Dodger Stadium and Staples Center to provide at least one vegan protein entree food option on their menus. Still the same. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely government overreach at its worst, isn't it? Absolutely. And we are proud vegans, but this is crazy. Right. So, Paul, we welcome you to call in tweet, whatever, but uh, please uh, back off on this one. It's just a bad idea. Leave the hungry people alone. Peter, a new Florida bill was
0: filed that would make it illegal to leave your dog behind and tied up outdoors during hurricane or other disasters. The bill states that those who abandon restrained animals commit animal cruelty and will be subject to a fine of up to $5,000 and first degree animal cruelty charge, punishable by up to a year in prison. Florida lawmaker Joe Grutters, who filed the bill, told the Tampa Bay Times that the bill was in response to the actions of pet owners during the devastating hurricanes Matthew, Irma, and Michael. He said he has seen numerous dogs left tethered to different things during the extreme weather events and that lawmakers want to give dogs a fighting chance.
1: So you're permitted to leave your dog behind, but just not tethered. Yeah, it's a little strange. I don't know how this law fits into the legal structure that's already there, but it is sort of heartbreaking to see these dogs and their. Gonna drown as the water rises, you know. Remember that? I remember yes, that video. That was yes. horrible. Oh, don't tell me. Yeah. So uh, it's. But what a shame that there are people who actually do this. How is this? It not is a insane? shame. It is a you shame you even
0: need a bill. Yeah. Yeah. To prevent
1: people from doing it.
0: Okay. Well, what what can I say? That's people.
1: Yes, that sums it up. That's people.
0: <laughs> don't go away. More with animals today, right after the break.
1: Welcome back to Animals Today. I want to rewelcome Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. Go to SaveAllFrogs.com and see what he's up to. In a previous segment, we spoke with Matt about reasons why frogs are in decline, and they are, and the cruelty that many frogs around the world face. And Matt has more frog issues on his mind. Hey, Matt
2: hello thank you for once again speaking with me and giving me the opportunity to raise awareness for the plight of frogs
1: now frogs do help people don't they how's that
2: they do. Frogs are extremely helpful to us um, because frogs are natural controllers of other animals like, for instance, ticks and mosquitoes. They eat a lot of and By doing that, they help stop the spread of diseases like West Nile and malaria and Lyme disease. So although we might not often think of frogs, they do provide a great benefit to us by, do, by you know, keeping those other animals in check which you know can often degrade our enjoyment of the outdoors or even make us very very sick and they're doing that naturally so we're not having to rely on pest control sprays and putting more chemicals and poisons into the environment they're controlling them naturally so that's very important to us and uh, and in terms of having a healthy environment secondly frogs are really paramount to keeping wetlands in a nice healthy state and again that should matter to people because wetlands are a natural form of flood and drought protection Um, clean water is certainly important if you want clean drinking water or you enjoy swimming or just being out on the wire we want healthy clean environments to be in so for all those reasons frogs are important but I think most of all, um, you know, they have intrinsic value and and they, you know, frogs have been around for, approximately 200 million years, and now they're finding themselves suddenly in trouble because of some of the issues that we've created for them. So since we have started the problem, I think it would just be very fitting and, 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 and quite wonderful if we could be the solution. So that's what it's all about, letting people know why our frogs are important and, and what we can do to help them.
1: Matt, how are you letting know about the importance of frogs and what are the ways ordinary people can help them?
2: I'm trying to get the message out there via outreach education so over the last little while you know I've been visiting schools and kids clubs and conservation areas and doing radio interviews and I did a tv interview yesterday for a local cable station so it's really about just utilizing all these different platforms to get the message out and raise awareness for these animals and you just asked what are some of the things we can do to help them well the first is you know we talked about you know, the fishing trade and food markets and all that. So one thing we can do is not support any trade that is harming our frogs. So not giving them any money, not supporting them. That's a really good thing that we can all do. Second, if you do go camping or hiking or cottaging and you see frogs, it's nice to look at them, but please don't pick them up. Um, We talked about them having very sensitive and permeable skin, so too much handling can hurt them. And if you're wearing bug spray or sunscreen or you have lotion on your hands, um, some of those chemicals can actually kill them. And especially if you have kids around, you know, kids often love frogs, which is fantastic. But, you know, we don't want to be mauling them. We want to kind of teach them to appreciate them by looking at them or watching them or taking pictures of them, but not mauling them so much. Um, With that being said, another thing we can do with our little ones, if we are out, if they see frogs again, they might be um, quite enthralled by them, which is fantastic but sometimes they want to take them home and keep them as pets. And certainly we don't want to be removing the animals from the wild. We want to be leaving them out in the wild where they belong. And then lastly, if um, there are listeners that happen to have a property adjacent to a pond or a wetland or a meadow or woodlands, or they have those features on their property, um, if you go to saveallfrogs.com, there's lots of tips on what you can do to help enhance those areas and- create habitats for frogs right on your own property. And certainly what we do good for frogs is good for, you know, all other animals in the environment as well and there's lots of other tips on there. Um, I mentioned a few but there's more like little individual things, efforts that people can do to help these animals out and as we talked about, with 30% of them facing extinction they really do need the help so anyone who is concerned about these animals, I'd really encourage you to learn more and find out how you can get active and involved with helping our frogs.
1: Matt, one thing we didn't touch on I want to ask you about. When I was a young student many many moons ago we dissected a frog I think in high school and this frog sort of came in formaldehyde or formalin and uh, it was huge bullfrog and where did that frog come from and are students still dissecting frogs and is that impacting uh, populations
2: it is, um, in fact, on my site saveallfrogs.com. There's a whole page um, dedicated towards dissections. So what happens is a lot of frogs are still wild caught for the dissection trade. Um, so it does, it is harmful. It does deplete populations, and and it's really unfortunate because now you know, if you want to learn about the biology and internal workings of animals, you know there are all these different software programs and websites and films and models and virtual dissections that we can do that are completely cruelty free that don't hurt the animals. so there's so many um options available so if you are a student or a teacher listening to this if you again if you go to say and visit the dissection page there are links there for lists of alternatives to dissections that you can present to your teachers um to encourage them not to support that that cruel and um, environmentally damaging trade of animals that are being harvested for the dissection trade. And if you are a teacher, again, there's alternatives there that you can provide your students. So it is unfortunately very unnecessary. And I think a lot of people are under the misconception that dissections are sort of archaic, but they are still going on today and and is certainly affecting our amphibians.
1: Well, Matt Elbrecht, we are so grateful for what you do. I particularly admire how you go right into the classroom and interact with the kids. It's so powerful. And I'll remind listeners, go to saveallfrogs.com and learn more.
2: Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to just share my message and my passion for frogs. So I greatly appreciate it.
1: More with animals today after the break.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or even better, a vegan diet, even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them and for the environment, too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days, and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support.
1: Coming up is my interview recorded just a few days ago with Kathleen Conley of the Humane Society of the United States, where we talk about toxicological testing on dogs and efforts to get 36 beagles released from a testing facility. After we conclude, I have an important update for you. Here we go. Welcome back. Another undercover video from the Humane Society of the United States has been released, showing heartbreaking footage of cruelty upon beagles and other dogs in a Michigan research facility. So we have invited Kathleen Conley, Vice President of Animal Research Issues at the Humane Society to tell us what is happening. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Explain what a facility like this one does, Uh, this particular one being the Charles River Laboratories in Michigan, what do they do and who are their clients?
3: They are known as a contract research organization and they serve companies, so companies will commission them to do animal tests for them. So, in this case, we went undercover and found dozens of companies um, asking for the use of dogs for toxicity tests.
1: And how specifically did you become interested in, in this lab or become aware of what they were doing that sparked this undercover effort?
3: We do know that there are hundreds of laboratories throughout the United States using dogs for testing and research, and we knew this facility specifically was carrying out toxicity tests on thousands of dogs per year, over 3,500 dogs alone last year. They were being used for pesticide tests, drug tests, dental implants, and so much more.
1: So define toxicity testing just for our listeners who are not sure what exactly that means.
3: Right, no, I can understand. It's not a commonly used word, but we are happy now to have the opportunity to explain to people. Uh, They give dogs large amounts of substances to see what their reaction is or um, how toxic the substance is to the animals. So they will force feed them, in one case, a pesticide, which was commissioned by Dow AgroSciences, where they give a pesticide in low or high doses every day for a year. And then they kill the dogs and harvest their tissues to see what the impacts were on their organs.
1: You know, there's a lot of talk about getting away from this sort of testing in animals, trying to turn it into something on a chip or something in a cell culture. Uh, It's amazing we're still doing this on on a beagle or a hound and trying to make claims that it has some valuable information on people. Can you talk about those issues a little bit?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I think the public really doesn't understand the extent to which this is happening. About 60,000 dogs a year in the United States for research and testing. Um, And like you said, we've come a long way technologically. So there's 3D printing and what are known as on-a-chip technologies where you can use human cells and tissues to determine the impact on their organs from these substances. I started working in this field in 1999 after working in a laboratory setting with primary mates um, in research, and they were breeding them for research. Uh, I learned then how, well, I thought then, how can this be the best way to address human health? Um, This can't be the best we can be doing. So decided to work from the outside trying to make change, and that's what we're trying to do is spur the use of animals, you know, away from the use of animals towards using 21st century technologies, which will give us better information. You know, I think the average person doesn't realize that over 90% of drugs uh, tested on animals ultimately fail in human trials, so I don't think anyone is going to think that's a, the way we should be going. We can be doing better than this, and so we're hoping by shining a light on what's happening to the animals through, you know, clearly these animals are suffering in this laboratory, and and move us in the right direction, away from using them.
1: So the footage you obtained, how old is it and what does it show?
3: So that is from last spring and summer, so 2018. Uh, it shows animals being force-fed, um, force-fed a pesticide, force-fed other, um, they'll, they'll put a tube down the throat of the dogs to try to um, force their um, ingestion of drugs, for example. We saw animals with uh, very invasive surgeries. There was one dog uh, who was very endearing named Harvey and he had his chest opened up and his ribs spread. and they doused his lung cavity with two commonly known substances um, in order to see the impact of the toxicity, how toxic are those substances to the lung cavity. Ultimately, Har- Harvey died and didn't make it out of the laboratory. But I do want to say there is a case here, we have an opportunity to save 36 dogs who were used um, or are being used every day in that Dow AgroSciences Pesticide Study. Okay. So Harvey, Harvey did not make it out. Thousands of dogs every year um, are killed in this laboratory, but we have a chance to save 36 dogs today.
1: Okay, tell us a little bit about those 36 dogs. There seems to be negotiations that have reached some kind of impasse.
3: Yes, so uh, we found that Dow AgroSciences was using dogs for this pesticide test. This one-year test, which involves force-feeding, like I said, dogs every day for a year, is universally accepted as unnecessary. Uh, When we approached the company, who we've had a longstanding working relationship with, they've actually worked with us in countries to get this test eliminated. So we were very surprised to find they were doing this. And they said they were doing so to meet... um, requirements in Brazil, uh, which is a country that still needs to formalize a policy that eliminates this test. So obviously, we know they're about to eliminate this test. We want to end it right away. We quickly went to the uh, regulatory agency in Brazil and said, can you please tell us that this doesn't need to be done, that these these dogs can be spared? Uh, we went back to Dow AgroSciences with that um, information. We secured a letter from the Brazilian agency saying, in fact, they do not need to do this test. Uh, Dow felt it needed more um, confirmation from the agency. And that's when we said, I'm sorry, we can't wait any longer. We need to let the public know what's happening. And that's why today I'm on the phone with you, urging the public to join us and telling Dow AgroSciences to end this test immediately.
1: And since you mentioned it, what would you like our listeners to do if they want to help?
3: if they could go to our website, humanesociety.org, or even visit our Facebook page, there is a petition. We have over 300,000 signatures already. Oh. We delivered about 250,000 of them to Dow this morning. So uh, we just want them to keep um, keep the pressure on Dow to get them to end this test right away and work with us in getting those dogs uh, dogs adopted out into loving homes.
1: What regulatory or legislative changes need to be made to reduce testing on dogs.
3: So in this case, the, uh, the one-year pesticide test, for example, we've had to go and we have um, a Humane Society International yep. uh, who were, you know, are part of our family of organizations. They have gone to country by country to eliminate this test off the books. In other cases, there's not a requirement to use dogs. So the Food and Drug Administration doesn't technically require the use of dogs, but often will ask companies to carry out tests on dogs. There's actually a Farm Pharmaceutical company right now trying to get a test approved, and the Food and Drug Administration told them you have to do a nine-nine. Uh, I'm sorry, a nine-month test on dogs to get your product approved. And the company thankfully stood up and said, "We're not going to do that. That's unethical." So it is going to take not just the public, but also companies to push back and say, "We're not going to be using dogs for no reason. We do not need to do this test uh, in order to get you know good results in humans."
1: The Humane Society wants to end testing on nearly 67,000 dogs. That's happening now. What are the primary reasons for that?
3: Well, we have an overall program to ultimately, re- ultimately replace all animals um, in testing and research. And it's going to take technological developments to get there, but we also need to say we don't want any more money um, that's publicly funded or private money going into these animal tests that are just wasting our time. So we know that these dogs are suffering. I think people can relate to dogs. They have them in their homes every day, and people don't even realize um, dogs or other animals are used. So this is a way to inform the public. Obviously, we don't want to see them turn from dogs to using other animals. Let's invest in the technologies which have phenomenally exploded in recent years to move away from using animals. We've learned a lot about the failures of using animals. It's time to use better methods.
1: I would encourage listeners to take a look at the short video, the short undercover video. It's a A little heartbreaking, a little tough to watch, but really uh, powerful, and then you can share it with someone who really needs to see it, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We're we're encouraging people to not just sign, but also share with everyone they know so that they'll sign um, and shine a light on this. Again, this is a long-term effort. Um, The first focus is to get these 36 dogs out, but we have a lot more work to do to get to those 67,000 other uh, dogs used every year um, and moving away from using animals, not replacing them with another animal, but using our technology, certainly we can do better than we are.
1: Kathleen Conley, thank you so much for your work on this and for joining us.
3: Thank you. Appreciate you spreading the word.
1: Okay, we have great news to report. Dow AgroSciences has agreed to end the one-year pesticide testing on the 36 beagles, thanks to the work of the Humane Society and the support of everyone who signed the petition and who shared their story. Also, Humane Society International worked diligently to obtain the waiver from the country of Brazil for this testing. Soon the beagles will be out of there and the Humane Society will be finding them loving homes. Way to go. More with animals today after the break.
4: Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org.
0: This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 11th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. Almost every community has an animal shelter or two nearby. And chances are you've visited a shelter to adopt one or more dogs or cats. But have you ever wondered about the early animal shelters like what was the first animal shelter in the U.S., and what did it do? I want to welcome back to the program Kate Kelly, author, historian, and media personality. She runs a couple of websites, including America Comes Alive.
5: Hey, Kate. Thank you very much, Lori. I'm delighted to be
0: here. Kate, reading your piece about the first animal shelter in the United States, I think I have a new heroine in the world of animal welfare, Carolyn Earl White. Who was Carolyn Earl White and what was her interest in animal welfare?
5: You know, she was a very fortunate woman of the 19th century because usually young women didn't exactly get to follow their nose with what interested them. But Carolyn was born to a well-to-do Quaker family in Philadelphia. And as, as you may or may not know, Quakers were very politically active for the most part, and they were also just more open to the idea of, of education for girls and that sort of thing. So so Carolyn was unusual for her time, but not for her her re- religion and, and that sort of thing. And one of the things that... W- We don't think about, but but she would have been a little girl in about the 18, you know, early 1840s. She was born in 1833, and one of the things that bothered her enormously was walking down the street and seeing the wagons and the wagon owners beating or in in some way really mistreating their horses or mules. These were beasts of burden the men needed them to do their work in order to make their deliveries through town and that sort of thing. And if they felt that the animal wasn't performing up to what they needed, they would beat them. They would do any kind of thing they could do, yelling, throwing things at them, and that sort of thing. And it really bothered Caroline to the point that she would be just horrified and would then try to avoid those streets because she remembered a particular scene with uh, you know, some sort of animal abuse happening. Yeah. So what was amazing was that she was able to live a life that could go on and, and figure out a solution to that sort of problem.
0: So what did she do?
5: Well, she had, by this time, she had gone on. She had married, and the fellow she married was out of her religion. He was Catholic. He was an attorney, but he was also very open-minded, and he supported her in her serious belief in animal rights. And so... He became aware that uh, Henry Berg in New York City was forming the, the American Society to, for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And so he suggested to his wife that she should go up and meet with Henry Berg. So she did. And so she came back to Philadelphia and began to set up the Pennsylvania Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm. She was soon joined by another fellow who was very interested in the cause, and his name was Colonel Richard Muckle. And they worked together to to work on this organization. When the uh, agreement, you know, the legal agreement had to be drawn up for the society, Uh, Carolyn invited her husband to do the legal work. And when they specified the board of directors, her husband was on the board of directors and so was Colonel Muckle, but she was not. Now, nothing is written about whether that upset her, but it was certainly an item of the day that women could participate and be active, but they couldn't do something like be in a board position. So whether she was offended by that or not, we will never know. But today, we certainly would be.
0: That's so interesting. So she's not even allowed to serve on the board of the organization that she started, being that she's a woman. And yet it grew very fast, didn't it?
5: Yes, it did. That organization started growing and she decided to fill another need, which was that in 1869, she started the women's. PSPCA. It later became known as the Women's Humane Society. And that was actually the organization that, that offered the animal refuge, which is what she called it. She was particularly interested in small animals, um, first dogs, stray dogs. And, you know, in that day, again, we have to think about what it was like at the time. There were there was no rabies um, vaccine, so animals were very likely to have rabies and so they were a danger to each other and also to- humans, if if there were too many or if they bit someone, and they also just had pretty much free reign of of any community. There was no leash law. They would have been guard dogs, so they would have been important to families, but there would not have been a lot of control of them, and also there would have been no spaying. So there were lots and lots of puppies. So she started this women's refuge and set it up in Bensalem, Pennsylvania, and offered a place to, to bring stray animals and, and was very successful in her effort at, at taking care of that matter. And people did bring animals, and they were able to get, run the dog catcher version of their organization where they would, would pick up stray animals. And, and so she really did fill a need uh, in that way. They went on from that standpoint to fill another need, and that was that she got a phone call running this organization. And the doctor said, you know, we're doing a lot of medical testing here, and if you would donate some of your extra dogs to us, we would really appreciate it. And with that, (laughs) Caroline had another cause, which was forming the Anti-Vivisection Society. So she formed the – this was a very active organization in London before it was in America. But she was the one that first formed that organization that really is is one that still exists today to – observe and prevent animals from being test subjects on, on different things from makeup and, and medicines and that sort of thing. So so she started that as well. And you just look at her life and you think, wow, she did so much. And just by rolling from one experience to another and seeing a need, she had all of these things that she was able to to formulate and things that are still with us
0: today. So Carolyn Earl White founded the first animal shelter. She championed other causes, like you mentioned, medical testing on animals. And she also was involved in the fight against the abuse of alcohol. Is that correct?
5: Yes, she felt as though a lot of animal abuse uh, was because men were drinking too much. And so she started establishing water fountains, figuring if you could give free Options for people to drink something else, maybe they wouldn't imbibe as much as they did. The the water fountains were multipurpose in the sense that there would also be a trough for, you know, animal. I mean, for horses or mules or dogs. So that was also a good thing. Whether or not she accomplished the drop in animal abuse by trying to prevent men from drinking as much is certainly nothing that has been proven or. Or written about, but it was an interesting theory, and of course, you know, lots of people went on to be active with the prohibition movement. So she certainly was not alone in her thinking. But this was also an era when, well, I guess we still have cockfights, and and they had something called dog baiting, where an animal would be tied up so that other animals could attack them, and and she just felt as though all those forms of entertainment were particularly enjoyed by men who have drinking too much.
0: Kay Kelly, I'm really glad you brought this to our attention. Carolyn Earl White is an amazing woman, and more people should know about her work as a pioneer in animal welfare. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
5: I was delighted to be with you. Thank you.
0: And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.